0: Welcome to the Bloomberg Surveillance Podcast. I'm Tom Keen. Daily, we bring you insight from the best in economics, finance, investment, and international relations. Find Bloomberg Surveillance on Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud, Bloomberg.com, and of course, on the Bloomberg. Right now, off of what we heard from Senator McConnell and the mystery of what we'll see today from uh, Disarray and the Republican Party is the reality of what it means for the funding of our transportation. That can be DFW in Dallas. That can be the airlines out west of railroads, coast to coast, Amtrak even. Or it can be the MTA. The chairman and CEO is ex Pat Foy joins us right now. Pat, you're listening to the dialogue in Washington. On the Foy desperation meter, how badly do you need federal help after the rider shortfall you're seeing?
1: Uh, on the desperation index, uh, we're, in a, we're facing a fiscal tsunami, a once-in-a-hundred-year fiscal tsunami, which has left our infrastructure uh, intact, but demolished 40% of our revenues. Uh, we, exhausted, we exhausted on Friday the last of the CARES dollars that uh, uh, we got several months ago. Uh, that was about $3.9 billion of funding. We need an additional 3.9, and these are shocking numbers, uh, to get us through the remainder of the year. Uh, our revenue sources are uh, come from our customers of uh, fares and tolls. Those are down precipitously, and the remaining half of our revenues comes from a dedicated package of taxes and subsidies, which are economically sensitive, and those too have fallen off a cliff. Tom,
0: do you get a feeling Washington and different flavors, including the gentleman residing above the Gucci store on Fifth Avenue? Do you get the feeling they're saying New York, drop dead?
1: Uh, I, I, I hope not. I, I think we'll find that out in the uh, in, in the weeks to come. Clearly, uh, states and cities around the country, including New York City and New York State, are in desperate need of funding. Uh, I'm here to talk about the MTA today, and the MTA is in desperate need of funding. The MTA is not only just a mass transit agency, it's frankly the circulatory system of the New York City regional economy. And not funding the MTA will stunt and thwart economic recovery and job creation all over New York.
0: Well, give us a sense of that scope and scale. I mean, we understand the subway system, the buses. I give you major credit for showing the decline in ridership numbers right up front on your website. But give us, give our viewers and listeners worldwide a sense of the geographic reach of the MTA. It's not the five boroughs, is it?
1: No, it, it, it's beyond. Subways, buses uh, in New York City, five boroughs, Long Island Railroad, uh goes out to uh, uh, Nassau and Suffolk County. Uh, Metro North covers Westchester and North, as well as part of Connecticut. And we've got a small operation that New Jersey Transit runs for us west of Hudson. Uh, in a typical day pre-pandemic, we'll carry well over 8 million passengers. Uh, pre-pandemic subway ridership, average weekday, five right. and a half million right. customers. Uh, right now, 1.2 million. That's up substantially from the depths of the pandemic but a fraction of the numbers that we would carry on all of those agencies.
0: Yeah. my anecdotal on this, folks, is real simple. I was thunderstruck how empty New York City was this weekend. Like, I've honestly never seen it in my time at Bloomberg. And Pet. Foy, you're living with this, with the empty office buildings of Midtown, and there's all these other stories as well. If you get that aid, what do you do with it? Or do you have to begin thinking about firing thousands of people?
1: Well, Tom, here's what we're going to do. I'm cautiously optimistic that we're going to get the funding because, frankly, it's in the interest of the nation to fund the MTA uh, to help uh, bolster New York City's regional uh, economic recovery. That's in the national interest. The pandemic is an international and national challenge, and it requires a national solution. So I'm cautiously optimistic that Washington is going to do uh, the right thing. But without funding, For the rest of the year, that's what we're talking about, to get us through 2020, the the decline in revenues has been that precipitous. Uh, We will have to consider things like wage freezes, like service reductions, like headcount reduction, delaying or deferring the capital plan. We have a historic $51.5 billion capital plan that was approved a year ago. We've put that on pause None of us wants to replay the movie from the 70s and 80s when the MTA didn't invest in subways and buses and service declined.
0: Pat Foy, we've got uh, some breaking news here, so I'm going to have to let you go. But we'll monitor this carefully. And, of course, the MTA folks uh, with a huge reach in New York. We welcome uh, Bloomberg 1130, uh, particularly listening to this this morning. Mr. Foy is chairman and CEO of the MTA. And they have a wonderful chief economist. His name is James Sweeney with terrific U.S. and British academics. James Sweeney was brilliant a few years ago saying the disinflation and deflation gloom of Europe a few years ago was off the mark. He joins us this morning with a different view. James Sweeney, are services going to cave in and join goods as disinflation and deflationary items?
2: Well, right now, services have joined goods with this collapse in activity, but it's been driven by shutdown. Now we're rebounding because there's some activity turning back on. But I think if you look beyond this rebound, the fears should indeed be toward uh, weaker inflation, including in services, given a very uncertain path for unemployment and, and potential for pretty elevated unemployment deep into 2021.
0: How have you adjusted your GDP for the United States of America? Give us a view out 12 months or, dare I say, even to the end of this year.
2: Well, yeah, I mean, again, the rebound is is formidable because when you turn the lights off and you turn the lights back on again, it does crazy things to the data. So what we're seeing now is an incremental Slowdown in the U.S. because of increasing infections in the summer. But, you know, we're still forecasting a very strong, basically double digit increase in Q3 GDP. But what you have to remember is that the level of activity is going to be well below trend.
0: Right. So, you know, th- th-
2: if we have GDP contracting, you know, 5%, 6% this year, right. Um, you're, You've got a big
0: hole to fill. Help me with a folk trio, McConnell, Mnuchin, and Meadows. I'm sure they're watching right now. James Sweeney, what's the American all-in unemployment rate now, the U6? It's over 20%, isn't it? Well,
2: that's a a fake number because that's telling you about how many hourly workers are getting zero hours during a a period of shutdowns. But I think the real number is probably closer to 10 than 5, And that's a big problem. And in six months, even if there's a vaccine around, um, if that number is still real number is still closer to 10 than five, um, then that has real implications for the the Fed and and for growth and and for inflation pressures.
3: Well, let's talk about the latter one. Inflation pressures, as you point out, will be below capacity for a sustained period, an extended period of time. Yet, James, there's a conversation drifting into inflation. Away from disinflation, inflationary expectations starting to pick up. James, from your perspective and your conversations, why?
2: Yeah, well, it's actually a very popular conversation among equity investors, not so much among debt investors. But the the view is basically, you know, M two money supply in the U.S. is up three trillion dollars. Bank credit is up just under a trillion dollars. You know, Treasury debt is is up, you know, three trillion ish. Uh, Fed balance sheet similar um, surely this is inflationary down the road, not so surely it's possible, but inflation is a forward looking phenomenon. It depends on expectations later on. It depends on whether the Fed responds to incipient inflationary pressures. A lot of good things have to happen first in order for us to get there so um, so i I think the focus is it needs to be on you know on exactly that European situation that I've been not expecting in the U.S. for a long time. But the odds <clears throat> that inflation gets stuck at a lower level yep. are elevated at, at the moment. And I think the Fed is going to be focusing on that. And I, I think we're going to see policy actions over the next six months that, that confirm that fear.
3: James, we can talk about the policy action in just a moment. Can you just walk through our audience the relationship between money supply and inflation? Just how tight has that relationship been or not over the last 10 years, <laughs> the last 20 years?
2: Poor, not yep. good, not not a good relationship. Um, and again, um, with with interest rates so low, bonds are not necessarily a great attractive alternative to cash in the bank. So if, if cash is being created and deposits are being created, you know I may not want to put those in fixed income securities. I may not want to take the risk of of equities. Uh, and so the deposits don't go anywhere. I mean, in the short run. <laughs> It's nice that the stimulus has, has gotten cash flow into a lot of especially you know lower income cash constrained workers so that they can pay their bills. That's extremely important. But the idea that this money is, is going to circulate mm-hmm. at a high rate and risk and, and really grow aggregate demand in a way that will quickly be inflationary. Uh right. seems, seems pretty far-fetched
0: to me. You're just joining us. Bloomberg Radio, Bloomberg Television, John Farrow and Tom King. James Sweeney with us with Credit Suisse, their chief economist. Lots of really good conversation this morning centering on Washington and our fiscal policy along with markets. Futures up 17, now up 13. James Sweeney, all that's fine, but if I get a James Sweeney economy, what does $4 trillion in debt do to it? I don't understand the dovetail of soggy nominal GDP you know, okay, kind of like real GDP, and a new overlay of four trillion in debt.
2: Well, I mean, longer term, I think that's what's happening with the dollar. I mean, I, I think Fair. there are fears about the the fiscal uh, path of the U.S. longer term, so it's driving a narrative both of longer term inflation and you know positive for gold and positive for break evens and, and and all these things. Um, but there's just a very important hump to get over first, and that's the disinflationary pressure. Of the, of the high unemployment. And I would say also, you know, without very high Fed purchases, uh, you're likely to see a decent slowdown in bank credit and money supply growth uh, over, over the next 12 you to know, 18 months. Um, we, and so we, if, if your argument is based on those things, your argument may fall apart.
0: John, who booked him? We don't do this much gloom on a Monday. James Sweeney, how are the market people at Credit Suisse reacting to your cautious view? The bond guys and the equity guys, they're different. How are each of them reacting to this scenario? Well, I mean, a lot of the bond
2: guys basically agree with it. I mean, on the <laughs> equity side, you know, our, our house field in Zurich, our investment committee recently went from overweight global equities to to neutral, uh, and part of it is based on these fears as we as we get into the into the autumn. And I mean, neutral is not underweight, and and risky assets are of course doing okay. Yeah. Um, and. But, you know, looking forward, I think expected returns have definitely come down.
3: Hey, Tom, this plays into the Golub trade as well, that you'll pay a premium for growth. Jonathan Golub, far more constructive on the growth names, big tech, than most people I speak to on Wall Street. Well, it has been for quite a while.
0: Yeah, and that's to the the conversation we had earlier with Alicia Levine at BNY Mellon, who went the other way and, and said you've got to go away from growth right now. I mean, John, these are these huge tensions all of them secondary to what we see in Washington over the next 48 hours. Well,
3: James, not just on the fiscal debate, let's talk about the Fed. They meet in 48 hours' time as well. Just sounds like your positioning now, thinking about the next move. Governor Brainard really, really stimulated this conversation in the last couple of weeks when she said we'll move from stabilisation to accommodation. And everyone on Wall Street was like, well, what was the last few months about if that wasn't about accommodation? What does that transition look like in your mind?
2: Well, I I think the last few months were about Emergency measures responding to the cash flow crisis uh, through the shutdowns um, and trying to ensure market functioning. And you know, if anything, they've over-insured market functioning. But I think going forward, again, it's where does the unemployment rate settle? What does the growth and in inflation look like three or six months from now? Um, and I think most of us think that activity is going to be running at a pretty low level, and so you're going to need more help. From, from the Fed. So you may be pulling back some of these emergency measures, but in the short run, uh, I, I think the Fed may signal that, you know, until unemployment and inflation are at exceptional levels, some kind of substantial stimulus is going to be in place. And I think in the, in the background is yield curve control as the next big bazooka to be fired at a time when you're in severe market and growth Wait, stress. So hopefully is, that doesn't show up, are, but that's the that's the big option.
0: James, aren't we in yield curve control right now? I, I mean, I'm looking at a tenure of 0.58%. How do you control a number that low in America?
2: Well, I mean, the fact that the market is behaving as if it's already implemented okay. serves the Fed's yeah. objectives. Like, that's a good thing. So what you don't want is, is the market to start to think they're never going to do this. And so yields, the curve starts to steepen. Yields start to, you know, move in a, in a, in a way that, that suggests, you know, tightening of, of financial conditions. So um, at some point, you know, they may need to formalize this thing. But at the moment, there's certainly no okay. need. Uh, Risk assets are doing okay, yeah. and, and yields are doing exactly what we need them to do.
3: Hey, James, great to catch up with you. Send our best to the team at Credit Suisse, <laughs> weren't you? James Sweeney there, Credit Suisse chief economist.
0: So we've got a market here, folks, that is extraordinary and a mystery. She's a chief strategist of mystery at BNY Mellon. Alicia Levine joins us. And what's great about Alicia Levine is prodigious academics behind trying to game and guess the view forward. Alicia, thanks so much for joining John and me uh, this morning. Can you buy the marginal share this morning, Alicia?
4: Yeah, but I think you don't buy it in tech. And, you know, the message from the last couple of weeks was really interesting. The five large cap tech stocks over the last two weeks were down over 5%. And the rest of the S&P was actually up 5% in the last two weeks, suggesting a broadening of the market. And the trade moving away from those you know, parabola-like stocks that we've all talked about for the last four months. Well, then do you, but re- you can.
0: Okay, but and you can. Yeah. Do you, well, I don't mean to interrupt, but this is so important. Do you rebalance by selling tech or do you hold the tech and put new cash to work? Which is it?
4: I think you have to sell a little tech here. Okay, I think I think that the growth stocks must remain a core holding and an overall portfolio allocation simply because going forward, growth will not be strong, will be lower, and so growth tends to outperform. But, you know, if you look at it on, on a chart basis, these are parabolas. They don't suggest future gains in the near term. So, you know, they've gone too far too fast. And the forward the forward comments after the quarters has not been matching what the stock prices have done. So I think you pull a little bit out of tech, and that's what we saw in the last couple of weeks. That people just sort of shaving, not not really dumping, but shaving, and that makes sense, you know, because that's what you do for rebalancing—you sell your winners and you kind of reallocate.
3: Tom enlighten me. So, when was the last time you interrupted someone without meaning to interrupt them?
0: Uh, I think Nixon <laughs> when did that was last president. Happen? No, Nixon. 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 Nixon was president. We're going back to Nixon,
3: yeah. Alicia. I know you're used to Maybe it. Maybe LBJ. Thanks for being with us it's this okay. morning.
4: Okay, I'm a New Yorker. It's
3: I know fine. you can handle it. I'm not worried about you, Alicia. At all, in any way, shape or form, the rotation away from tech. Let's continue that conversation because a lot of people come on this show, as you know, Alicia, and they talk about rotating out of tech, but into the cyclical areas elsewhere. EM, Asia, China, Europe, much more so. Is there an argument to stay U.S.-based?
4: So I think, look, it's really interesting. Right now, the rest of the world is recovering faster than the U.S. So we see it in the industrial production in China. We saw it in the data coming out of China in the last week, and we saw it last week coming out of Europe in the PMIs. So the rest of the world is recovering faster. The only thing I'll say is that the valuations tend to get higher in the U.S. I think you definitely have to have an allocation to Europe, but the softer dollar does argue for cyclicals here in the U.S. That's going to be the bedrock of the in some of these stocks. I mean, so your softer dollar is helping these multinational companies. And by the way, multinational companies are exposed to the recovery overseas. So, you know, you have to stay in the U.S., but I think Asia is great, and I think Europe looks, looks like a nice trade here.
3: Well, Alicia, let's continue this conversation then. Is the weaker dollar a symptom of the foreign inflows or a driver of them? How do you frame that for clients at the moment?
4: Well, that's a really great technical question. Thank you, Jonathan. Um, I think, I think it, it's a symptom, and it's a symptom because let, let, let's go back to first, first basis, right? First basis is the path of the recovery is going to track the path of the virus, okay? And what we've seen in the last six weeks is pa- that the path of the virus is exploding everywhere in the U.S., and so economic activity is flattening. And so there it's not happening in other regions of the world. So therefore they're recovering faster. We're flattening. We <laughs> saw the first problem in the labor market last Thursday where the claims data went in the wrong direction for the first time in sixteen weeks. So we're gonna start feeling it here. And I think this the softest dollar is a reflection of that. Not to mention, not to mention yields are so low we've got negative yields as you were talking about all morning long. So I think I think well, the, the weaker dollar is a symptom.
0: Are, is dividend and dividend growth a proxy for yield right now?
4: Uh, yes. Yes. Um, look, you know, it's interesting. Only 62 companies in the S&P have actually cut dividends. I would have thought that would have been more. And it's interesting that they haven't. And part of that is due to the, uh, the support from the Fed supporting all the different levels of bonds here, you know, creating a situation where you have enough capital and you can still pay dividends because it's the number of companies that have cut dividends actually lessened in 2008 and 2009, which I find really interesting. I would not have expected. That, did that three
0: months ago. Welcome, all of you, on Bloomberg Radio, Bloomberg Television. John Farrow and Tom Keene. Alicia Levine with us right now, BNY uh, Mellon. Alicia, what are you seeing people actually do with their money? I'm fascinated when I talk to you or, say, Lizanne Saunders at Schwab about what the actual action is of people. What is the action right now?
4: So the action is very defensive. And that's why we remain cautiously bullish on, on, on this market, nervous but bullish. Because positioning is defensive. So money, market, funds, goals, and bonds, and investment-grade bonds. And that's really where the, the incremental trade is coming from. People are nervous to buy into this market. And as long as you still have that going on, you have support. You know, it, it, it's, a, it, it's a contrarian you know, view. And, and so, therefore, you, know, you have support under the market. But positioning is defensive.
3: So, Alicia, let me ask the stupid question. Who's buying stocks then?
4: Um, if, look, people are buying – people are still buying stocks. They're just not running into tech in the same way. I mean, the, you know, the last couple of weeks was a cautionary sign oh, that on. the valuations do matter ultimately, and you have to take some of the excess out of it. <clears throat> so look, we, we are we are seeing buying in equities. It's just the, the trade is – you know, the incremental trade still is bonds, gold, and, and fixed income.
0: Just because we're hermetically sealed here, John and I are in two separate, you know, cubicles to try to yeah, keep it that way, too. Together. Well, you know, that, that's I true. I can see
4: that. I can <laughs> but, see that. You know, <laughs> I,
0: I, I I just did a log chart on Amazon with some fancy moving mathematical averages for Alicia Levine. Come on, Alicia. Amazon, all it's done is fallen back to a very comfortable support. It's not a correction. It's almost like a pause. No. I mean, do you buy the dip? Can you buy the dip <coughs> in the tech stock? Yeah, I'm asking. I yes. need to make some money here. So yes. NASDAQ weekend. futures
3: are up 9 yes. tenths of 1%. Where's the <coughs> dip on NASDAQ, on the NASDAQ over the last couple of weeks? I know we've come back a bit, but hardly. We're still up near all-time highs, Tom.
0: I don't know. I'm just trying to impress Alicia with my math, and all I see is on a log chart, Amazon's back to support. I mean, it's not like it's caved in. Right. No, so, but,
4: but look, it is 12% off the high. So... You know, that is not, you know, again, that is, that's not a bad, that's not a bad entry point for any stock after you're, you know, 10 to 12% off the highs and that kind of fast mover. That's that's fine. We don't think these stocks are rolling over. We just think some of the excess has to come out of it. And charting is a great way to pick your entry point. Alicia. But, you know, as I've said before, parabolas don't make for great technical charts. You have to wait.
3: Always enjoy catching up with you. Geometry appreciate your patience Alicia. this morning with you us know. as well, Alicia Levine. <clears throat> Being one man mean? there,
0: are you throwing me I'm, shade? I'm
3: usually I'm usually saying <clears throat> that are, are, to are, appreciate are, their tolerance for a certain someone who wears a bow tie. Are and you throwing
0: me some parabolic I, I, is shade? That,
3: is that new? I do that every day. Yeah, you
0: do that every day. Right now, in this oddest of baseball seasons, we have to drag on Douglas Cass. Talk to us about. The equity markets talk to us about his brilliant call on Amazon that's working out, and of course, a lot of other things as well. Can I, Doug Cass? Good morning.
5: Good morning, Tom. I just um learned that the Marlins home game,
0: yeah, canceled. We had that on. We, you know, ESPN reported that in the athletic, right. and uh, right. there's eight players with a virus, etc. Uh, we'll talk about that in a bit. Can we just talk a minute, Doug Cass, about? Someone who never gets print because he's outside the three zip codes that matter. And that is a gentleman pitching for the Chicago Cubs today. John Lester has delivered what everybody's supposed to deliver. You got paid a ton of money, but year after year after year, a guy, he he, he's getting older. And, you know, he's older than you. No, no, he's not that old. But here's a guy that had lymphoma. He older than Paul. No, he's not that old. But he had, you know, he had lymphoma when he was young. He's got like seven World Series rings and the guy, you know, with all the negativity about baseball, he's a guy that just delivers it year after year.
5: Yeah, he's fantastic. I like the Cubs this year, actually. I like the Yankees more.
0: Yeah, uh, you like the Yankees more and I know you were telling me this weekend they're starting out well. What you really like is Amazon. Joe Felbin today, typical in the street, twenty eight hundred. He goes up with a extrapolation out to thirty six hundred on Amazon. You're way out in front of that. How far uh-huh. out are you looking, Doug Cass? I have on a on Amazon.
5: 000, I have a five thousand dollar <laughs> price target in twenty twenty two, which I mentioned I think twice wow. last year. <laughs> And um, there was a lot of uh, size and disbelief. Um, my near-term target was $3,000. i have sold out of the stock of oh, short-term because I think the market and the Microsoft and Fang stocks um, are going to retreat. But can I just mention something about what you and John were discussing? You had such an interesting conversation over the last hour. Yeah, once a month. Yeah. Uh, John was talking about the band-aids of policy, and then you guys were talking yes. about real interest so, rates, yeah, gold, and yeah, what it all yeah. means. I just think that we're in such a fascinating time in financial history. There is today almost uh, a tensile relationship between current real interest rates, which continue to fall, as you discussed, comp- compared with the inflation break-evens, which is rising. I just called my pa- mm-hmm. our, our pal, Peter Pokvar, and he yeah. tells me that break-evens on the 10-year are at a multi-month high of 1.5%. So we have to try to figure out the reason, and there seems to be a growing belief in stagflation with also the Fed pinning rates. We're going to have still large yeah. QE, and as you talked earlier this morning about a yield curve control, but stagflation is not equity market friendly. And I'm mm-hmm. going to remind you guys that it's time to consider bond convexity what the risk reward is in fixed income, and that bond investors might be content in picking up pennies in front of a steamroller, but we have learned over history it's dangerous. And finally, I'll remind you also then in finance that something called bond convexity, it's a measure of uh, the relationship of bond prices to changes in interest rates. It's the second derivative of the price of the bond with respect to rates with duration being the first right. derivative. And so in general, the higher the duration, the more sensitive price. Okay, well, are. this is
0: really be. important. I want you to frame out here some of your bearish tone, Doug Cass. And sure. we do this, folks, understanding everybody understands after a few crises in the business that bonds are typically out front of the equity zeitgeist. Do you agree with that, Doug Cass?
5: Yeah, yeah. I think um, bonds, as John Farrow mentioned, are telling a far different story than consensus economic and profit expectations are. So, Doug, what what do you think the bond hey, Paul, market? Good I mean, morning. Yeah, good morning, Doug. So, right here, we've seen the bond market really over the last you know nine months at least really tell a different story. Particularly as we're coming into the pandemic here, the bond market really told a different story here. Um, what's the bond market telling you now? Um, the bond market is telling me that the Fed is going to have yield control, and that the uh, the economic um, expectations and S&P profit expectations for 2021 20, um, are unrealistic. Um, I think that, you know, getting back to the, the issue at hand that Tom mentioned, I think the wise man considers the ifs, the contrary, and constantly evaluates and often, often rallies against group uh, think or what I call group stink. And your question, Paul. I think that there's worse than expected earnings and economic growth to come. Um, uh, one of the most uh, intelligent strategists is Dave Costen at Goldman Sachs. He's estimating 170 dollars for S um, and P earnings, but that does not take into account a Democratic victory, which is going to shave off probably 20 dollars a share, taking it down to 150. And I live at 135, 140. Uh, a share for next year, and I don't believe S and P earnings will regain what they achieved in 2019 until 2022, 23. Um, and I, I think it's also important that um, technology earnings um, may not live up to a very high high bar because I think there's been likely a massive pull forward of sales, even for Amazon, but certainly for Netflix, Zoom. Uh, right. and Tesla, not in sales, but in <laughs> regulatory credits, which I recently shorted. I sh- recently shorted all those stocks except for Amazon. Um, we saw in Microsoft Azure, the cloud business, the rate of growth decelerating markedly yep. from 60% to 46%. Um, so uh, we're going to have weakening economic growth, and we could see the reappearance of bond vigilantes, which we haven't seen since the early 80s. You know, I, The final thing I would mention is that I think size matters in the stock market. And there have been three outsized industry weightings in the last um, 40 years. Uh, Back in um, 1980, energy stocks represented 29% of the S&P. And then, of course, Exxon lost 50% of his value in the next two years. Back in 07, financials represented the same 29%. And then we know that J.P. Morgan lost 75% of its value uh, in the next three years. Today, big technology represents 38% of the S&P. So I see those two comparables in energy and financials uh, impacting technology, and I started to short the sector. Doug, I think our listeners as they drive around here are saying, this gentleman is painting a bear market picture. Is that your view? It's my view, but the last time I was on, you know, I'm not a permanent bear. The last time I was on, I talked about a rip-your-face rally. I used the word mother of all short squeezes on market surveillance. I went aggressively long in March when the S&P traded at 2200 That was the largest discount to fair market value or intrinsic value based on my calculus that we've seen since December of 2018 when I also went long. So now the market leadership yep. is uh, narrowing conspicuously. Stock prices mm. now are well above intrinsic value, and it's time to short.
0: Okay, but Doug, what does somebody do in a 401k position where they don't have time to short? They don't want to just or they just want to place assets for long term. Are you comfortable there being in small cap value, or do you still say say growthy?
5: If you have a time horizon of, let's say, you're talking about a time horizon of Seven more than years eight or to 10 when the years. Red
0: Sox win again.
5: Well, that's like 20 or 30 years. <laughs> thank you. <laughs> uh, if you have a Red Sox time horizon, you should certainly not modify your positions. But a lot of people listening into surveillance and a lot of, listening. there are a lot of traders, and traders have uh, time frames of under two years, often under if they're Robin, Robin Hood and the Merry Men in Sherlock Forest. Uh, they have a time frame of a few minutes or a few hours. So it depends on your time frame. Okay. If your time frame is is under a couple months, um, I would uh, forget, Tina, there is no alternative. And think about CITA, C-I-T-A, cash is the alternative. Nothing wrong with holding cash.
0: What about a longer term? I didn't get an answer. Three years, five oh, years out.
5: Yeah, five years out, I wouldn't disturb investment positions. So, Doug, I mean- you know, The gravitational pull of stocks is higher. Yeah. Yep. And particularly, I mean, it, are you comfortable that this Fed is going to remain a backstop for risk assets, including the stock market? I, I am comfortable about that. But um, I think that we have to consider that the Fed's balance sheet uh, in 2011 was about $2.5 trillion. It's over $7 trillion today. In the interim interval, U.S. nominal GDP only rose by about 30%. That means to me, and this is really important, it takes more and more debt to produce a unit of production. That's a real negative. So Katie, bar the doors. The bond vigilantes reappear. And all of a sudden, public and private sector um, service of debt is challenged. And that's the big black swan that lies ahead.
0: We haven't seen that yet, Charles Plosser. No, we haven't. To be with it yet. Us tomorrow. Doug Cass with us right now with Seabreeze. Doug, uh, it's happened before. It is happening now. It is a bull market. A VIX from eighty to twenty-five, and retail climbs on board with a laptop on the couch. However, it is as well. I want you to speak right now to all the people listening who've been playing the game. Some have gains, some don't. Where are they heading?
5: Well, these speculative stocks, one of my uh, big concerns is they're going to collapse. They always do. I've seen this in the past. Uh, Speculation always takes the same form in every cycle. It did in the dot-com era. It did in 2007. It's doing it right now. You have uh, low-priced debt. Debt is plentiful. And you have a new uh, class of buyers in an asset class, and the new class is robin hood and his merry men and um it, you know that occurred because uh, uh for a number of reasons um commission rates were pegged at zero after being really high priced and going down as they got commoditized over a period of time and of course you got the um uh, federal government's checks um so they had nothing to do They couldn't bet on sports so they started betting on stocks and that's really dangerous And I have shorted a package months ago of um, stocks that I consider to be worthless and bankrupt. I won't mention them, but, you know,
0: example would be
5: Hertz. Mm -hmm. Example would be Hertz, where stock, some of them are already down 80%. But there are a number of concerns I have. I've expressed to you in my top 10 list of concerns. I'm Mm -hmm. concerned that COVID-19 spreads and fatalities expand. Um, We have gutted um, the real estate business the hotel business, the travel business, airlines, cruise lines, and importantly, our educational institutions, which are large employers. And I wouldn't be surprised in the next couple of months, we hear of a large well-known university that closes yeah. and shocks the markets. Um, the second thing is that the, this rift between China is widening. Um, China is obviously playing hardball in the face of a likely Trump right. loss. And uh, I could see a furious president yeah. retaliating. Uh, his popularity is falling uh, further, so he could lose his well, composure, introduce a number of wild policy <laughs> shifts, moving further to the yeah. right. Um, we had the Wirecard um, fraud yeah, in Europe, out. which no one's discussing.
0: Did you? And were you a Chano's? Were you short Wirecard?
5: I had uh, no position in Wirecard yeah, okay. either. That. <laughs> No one's smarter than Jimmy on the short side. Yeah, That's but true. That is. We true. could have a large U.S. fraud which shakes the markets. I mean, that happens okay. often late in the
0: cycle. <clears throat> Doug, because of time, we got to leave it there. I also, you need to rest before the Yankees take another victory. I can't believe I just said that. (laughs) Douglas Cass with Seabreeze, and we say thank you uh, this morning. Thanks for listening to the Bloomberg Surveillance Podcast. Subscribe and listen to interviews on Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud, or whichever podcast platform you prefer. I'm on Twitter at Tom Keen. Before the podcast, you can always catch us worldwide on Bloomberg Radio.